William Patton. He's going to be leading us in our first scripture reading today. Psalm 110, 1 through 2, of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Our second scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29. The author of Hebrews writes these things under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. For even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses that Moses said, I tremble with fear. but, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape. If we reject him who warns from heaven, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Throughout the month of December, we've been in a sermon series where we've been talking about the call of the Old Testament. I've been saying the Old Testament is pregnant or the the first week if you were here, I talked about the Old Testament uh, like the first half of a play, when you, when you break for intermission in a play, there's all these storylines. A good playwright leaves all these storylines unfinished at the intermission. And you, you break for the intermission. You can't get, wait to get back in there to see what's going to happen in the second act of the play. How's, how's all of this going to be wrapped up? How's all of this going to make sense? And that's what the Old Testament is like. There's, there's all these unfinished storylines. There's all these calls of the Old Testament. And specifically in this series, we've been thinking about what is now known as the offices of Christ that the Old Testament is really calling for. The Old Testament we looked at first week is calling for a prophet, a true prophet, one who really with authority speaks on behalf of God, one to whom the people will listen to. And of course, we we said that Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus doesn't just come to speak on behalf of the word of God. He is himself the word of God. He is himself the authority of God. We said that the Old Testament is calling for a priest, someone who can rightly go before God and make intercession 
for the people of earth, someone who can rightly go before God and intercede for us. And we said, of course, Jesus is the true priest, the only one that is truly worthy to be in the presence of God, the only one who can really plead on our behalf, and and who doesn't just plead on our behalf with words, but with his own blood. But of course, the Old Testament is also calling for a king and for a kingdom. One of the things that you you begin to see if you study the Bible is is what's kind of called progressive revelation, that that God throughout the story of Scripture reveals more and more of himself to his people. So, of course, you know, after the fall, when Adam and Eve were outside of the garden, we didn't really know much about God. Of course, the, the way to God was guarded, but of course, God begins to reveal himself. He begins to make covenants with people. He makes a covenant with Noah, and we learn a little bit more about God. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and we learn a little bit more about who God is, what his nature is. And then, of course, God uh, makes a covenant with Moses, and we learn a lot about God. We, We learn about all the laws and all of the order that God has given. And eventually, God establishes a kingdom among the people of earth with a king, with a ruler, and if you're familiar with the story of Israel, if you're familiar with the narrative of the Old Testament, this begins kind of a very interesting part of Scripture, the narrative of the kings. And if you're familiar with this part of the Scripture, there's some crazy stories in there, and there's not many of the kings of Israel that were, in any sense of the word, models of righteousness, right? There weren't many of the kings of the Old Testament that, that you could really look at and say, okay, this is a guy that I should model my life after. In fact, most of them were just the opposite. Most of them were pulled away from the things of the Lord. They were pulled away by money. They were pulled away by the hope for global influence. They were pulled away by women. They, they, were, they were distorted and destructed, and they were pulled away from God's order and God's truth in a number of different ways. Of course, eventually, the nation of Israel splits into two nations. You have Judah and you have Israel. And, and eventually, of course, these two nations were taken over by other nations and the temple and the land and the kingdom and all these things that God had established to make himself known on earth were no more. And, and that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. There was a remnant that had come back to rebuild the temple, but there was no king. Ahaz was the last king of Israel. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, but that was... 600 years before the birth of Christ. But amidst all of this, in the Old Testament, there is this kingly hope or this messianic hope that one day Israel would have a king again, that one day there would be a right king, a righteous king, a king that would follow the order of God, a king that would lead with equity and with order. And there, as I said, there is this calling for a king. This hope for a king. You you end the Old Testament, if you're reading it, saying, who is this guy going to be? Who is this Messiah that is going to come? And so as we've done in the past couple of weeks, I kind of want to look at two points with you today. First of all, our need for a king. And then secondly, the true king. So let's talk about our need for a king. Now, in order to understand our need for a king... I think it's, it's appropriate for us to think about what a king actually is. We're not really kingish people. Uh, we don't know much about kings. You know, we, we obviously have a democracy. We have a, uh, a republic that we, we live within. And, and the kings that we know something about, there, there are some true kind of monarchies in the world. But most of the kings that we know anything about, uh, you know, it's kind of a representative thing. It's a, it's a symbolic thing. Like, for example, the royal family in England... 
They're not really making any decisions. They, they don't really know what's going on with Brexit. They're just kind of riding their horses around and having a great time. And uh, it's a symbolic thing. They're, they're the head of state, sort of. Um, but that's a very different idea than traditionally through history, how we understood what a king was. A king was a sovereign ruler. A king came in and established an order uh, and established justice and defended the people. Yeah, I, we were talking in our little preaching meeting this week, and I said probably the closest thing that our crowd has to a king is like a college football coach, right? That's, that's probably the closest thing that we have to understand what a king was really like. But, you know, when a king shows up, when it, or rather a coach shows up, it's like a king comes in. You know, I have a friend that played under Mike Shula at Alabama, and then he was there when Saban took over. And he was like, when that happened, everything changed. You know, a king had come to Tuscaloosa. And that's really probably the best way to understand it. A completely new order had shown up. That's what a king is like. He establishes an order. He establishes righteousness. He holds people to that order. And also, a king defends his people from the outside world. Uh, a few years ago, I had the chance to go, actually with, with two guys that are here, Brett Pennington and Andrew Duhon, we, we had a chance to go to the Vienna War Museum or the Austrian Hungary War Museum. It's a great museum. If you're ever in Vienna, it's, a, it's an amazing museum. There's all these wars. The Austria-Hungary Empire, really fascinating empire. And the, the interesting thing about the museum is just how many wars that empire endured. And of course, when the empire was being attacked, there's borders all around. When the empire was being attacked, who was responsible to go out and defend the people? Who was responsible to go out and to protect the people uh, at these border towns? It was the king. The king both established order and protected his people. You could say it this way. A king brings order and protection. So now back to our original question. What is our need for a king? Well, the truth is, you all have a king because you all need a king. You all have a king. You have to have something in your life that establishes order and that you trust in, that you depend on to protect you. I don't know what that king is in your life, but there is something that is giving you this anchor of identity that's establishing order in your life, that's telling you what's right and what's wrong and what's good and where you should spend your time and how you should order your life. They're established, the king is establishing order, and it's providing for you a sense of protection, a sense of protection for the outside world. You, you could say it this way. What are you counting on? You know, Christmas is a good time to think about all this. You know, I think of the... John Lennon song, so this is Christmas, what have you done? Another year over, a new one's just begun. What, have you, what did you count on this year? What did you rest in this year? What ordered your life this year? I mean, seriously, I know that you, I know we're in church and you, the answer is, you know, God, but, but what really ordered your life this year? Where did you really find your rest this year? Was it really the Lord? What are you counting on? You know, a lot of people, it's, it is their job. You know, they, they find a lot of identity there. The, the, their job orders them. Their job tells them when they can do this and when they can do that. Some people, it's, uh, you know, money, a sense of wealth, maybe some reputation that you have. I always say this, you know, when, when someone cuts you off, you know, in traffic, or when somebody breaks in line in front of you at the airport, or when someone's kind of mean to you, cold to you at a Christmas party, whatever the next thought that comes into your mind that tells you a lot of who your king is, what's anchoring you. 
You know, somebody's mean to you at the party and you say, well, if they only knew, you know, that I was the district manager at such and such, you know. If they only knew that I went to Vanderbilt, they wouldn't have been so mean to me. You know. If they only knew who I knew, if they only knew who I was connected with, that tells you a lot about what's anchoring you, what's ordering you. If they only knew how much I was worth. What is it that orders you? What gives you a sense of identity? What protects you? I was having a conversation with Josh Youssef this week about a mutual friend of ours, and it was a convicting conversation. You know, this, this person that we, we, we're friends with, their first response to trial, their first response to trouble is prayer. They'll say, I'm going to pray. The first thing they do. And Josh and I were just saying, you know, how often uh, is our first response when something bad happens to make a phone call? or to go talk to someone, or to set up a meeting, or to try to raise some money, or you know, to try to do something. We'll, get, we'll take care of this one. And we're just convicted by this person. Their first response is just prayer, <laughs> to seek the Lord, to rest in him. This mutual friend, their, their anchor, their identity, their response to trouble is to pray. What's, what's yours? What do you do? What's ordering your life? And here's the next question. Whatever that is, will it stand? Who is your king and will he stand? Will he really stand? Will he, will he really be there for you? Will, will that king, whatever it is, will, will it really last? When I, when I first moved to Covington, uh, I met this man and I was very impressed with him. Uh, it was a man named James and he had come from the same hometown that my grandfather had come from, a little town called Huxford, Alabama. I'd never met anyone else from Huxford, Alabama that was outside of my own family. And I was, so I was kind of impressed by this guy. And my grandfather, he was a decent man, but he was a simple man. He, he you know, grew up in this really hard situation, grew up on a farm, went to World War II, Got a job as a postal worker, lived a hardworking, decent life. But, you know, he, he had his struggles. He struggled with alcohol. He struggled with, uh, he smoked his whole life. He was kind of a cold man, if I have to be honest. I didn't really know him that well. I only have a couple of memories with him. Um, and so I met this man. Eventually, he, he died when I was about nine years old of cancer, so lung cancer. Um, I met this man, and, and he just was very different. He... He was so warm. He was really successful. They grew up in the same town. They were, about, they were about the same age. This man was a little younger than my granddad. And this guy was so successful. He'd worked his way through college. He'd started these businesses. He made all this money. He had this great horse farm out in Covington. So I was kind of taken by this, this guy. and Got to know him a little bit. Well, it was 2008. And like a lot of people in 2008, uh, he started losing a lot of money. He'd made some investments and some things weren't working out for him. And it got so bad for him that one day he went out uh, by his pond there on his little horse farm and he, he ended his life. And I was just shocked by this. You know, I was 26, I was trying to minister to this family, I was trying to make sense of all this because I was really kind of taken by this guy. He, he, he just kind of seemed like, man, this is a great man. And I just identified with him because he was from the place my granddad was from. And I was talking to his wife or his widow uh, afterward. And we're trying to make sense of all this together. And she said, you know, he had worked for 50 years. He was such a hard worker. 
He'd worked for 50 years for all this, and he'd, he built up all these securities, and then just within a few months, he felt like he was losing it all. He'd gone to work. He'd done all this thing. He'd built this great reputation. He'd ordered his life. He had this protection. He had this great business, and then it was all going down the drain, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And it was a good thing for me as a young guy to see how fragile things are, how fragile money is, how, how little protection it actually provides, how fragile even things like a reputation or things like relationships can be. You all have a king because you all need a king. You have to have something to order your life around and you have to have something that will protect you. But here's the question, will your king stand can your king really stand when it's tested? Is it really grounded? You know, this is the story of the Old Testament. All these kings, most of them at least, fell. And then ultimately the whole kingdom fell. Everything was lost. Which brings us to the second point, most important point, which is the true king. We've looked at your need for a king, but what about the true king? If you really look throughout the Old Testament, again, there's only a few faithful kings. There's one that dominates the story. In fact, this person's name, it's the most common name in all the Bible. And I'm talking about King David. Uh, he was, despite some major sins, he was the man. He was consistently faithful. He, he ruled over Israel. He ruled in righteousness. He had a heart for God. I mean, David, in a lot of ways, is kind of the anchor of the Old Testament, this great king of Israel, which makes the passage that David Patton read to us earlier kind of shocking. Let me read again how it begins. David is saying, the Lord, this is God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. See what's happening here? David is talking about God. He's saying, God is saying to my Lord, to my king. Now this is, what makes this interesting is this is David. He's the king. He is the Lord. And yet he's recognizing that there's this other Lord. There's this other king out there, the, the one who truly has the scepter in his hand, the one who truly will make his enemies his footstool. Who is David's king? Now, again, this is one of those questions, these Old Testament studies questions where it's kind of hard to know who exactly or how much David actually knows here, how much revelation David actually has. Is he writing this under the spirit? Does he know what he's talking about? But there's a very sense that David at least is starting to understand that even though I'm the king, there is a true king. There is another king that is coming. There is a greater king to align your life with, to give you true protection. You know, uh, William just read the first couple of verses here, but let me read verse three uh, through the rest of the psalm. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this priest king from the book of Genesis. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, wild, or the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is king. David's 
king, this, this intermediary king. He's making his enemies his footstool. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's a king like Melchizedek, who's also a priest. He's the king who will intercede for his people, who will shatter his enemies, who will provide for his people, who will execute his, ju- his judgment. David is recognizing another king, this true king that is coming. And I really believe this. I believe this about David that somehow by the spirit of God, David recognizes that one day he's going to serve his own offspring. That one day, even though his kingdom was so great, it was just a shadow of the true king to come. And that is what the author of Hebrews is then talking about. So, so you can see the call in the book, in Psalms, and then we, we see the answer here in Hebrews. Now again, I, I read the first part here. Let's go back and look at it, verse 18. And it's talking about what happens when people come near the Lord. You may not, you, you, uh, you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What is this saying? So the author of Hebrews here is talking about the picture of Mount Sinai, the time when God himself, the presence of God himself, appeared before the people of Israel. And you know what's happening to them? They're totally undone. They see the presence of God. They see the power of God, the authority that God has, and they're totally undone by it. In fact, God is speaking to them, and they're so convicted by it. They're saying, no further messages be spoken. Even Moses himself is saying, I tremble with fear. You know, we kind of see this throughout the Bible. Think of Isaiah when he saw the glory of God filling God's temple, what does Isaiah say? I am in, undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Even Peter, I think of Peter. When Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Lord in Luke 5, I was thinking about this passage this week when they have the great catch of fish. What does he say? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. So much of what we think about, what we work for, what we look for where we, where we try to find order and protection. I just want to say it's a fragile king. It's fragile. It's, it's a fragile kingdom. It's fragile today. But how much more fragile are the things that we count on in the very presence of God? How much more fragile are the things that we count on when God appears? But here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, in Christ, in Jesus, you have the offer of a true king and of a true kingdom that will not be shaken. We're going to look at this later, but verse 28, it says, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is the true king. And his is the true kingdom. His is the kingdom that will stand forever. And it's a good kingdom. That's what's being described in verse 22 through 24. Let's look at that together. So he says, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Now there's a play here. Again, you can miss it. So the first part, this is what happens when you come to Mount Sinai. You cannot touch the mountain. You're terrified at the presence of God. But in Christ, what it says is you have come to Mount Zion. You've come also into the presence of God, but it looks a lot different here. 
Look at verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion and to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, of course, the hope of the Christian, the thing that we hope in, the thing that we look for, is the kingdom of Christ, this new kingdom of Christ, the, the fullness of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of Christ is something that's kind of hard to understand. Uh, is it here? Is it something that, that we have right now? Or is it something that we only look forward to? And the way that theologians have talked about this is to talk about the already and the not yet of the kingdom. In one sense, the kingdom is not yet. We, we don't know yet the fullness of the reign of Christ. We still live in the kingdom of earth. We still live among the kingdoms of earth. So it's, it's not yet, but in Christ it's already. There's, there's tastes, there's glimpses, there's foretastes of this kingdom that is to come. There's foretastes of this new heavens and new earth. And that's what he's saying here. He's not saying you will come to Mount Zion. Even though the fullness is yet to come, he's saying you have come. Not completely, but in Christ you can taste these things. And it gives the promise of a couple things that I want to think about. The first is a city. You've come to the city of the living God. In this city of God, the ultimate hope of the believer, of course, is that we would be with God in this eternal city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth. And I love to think about that. What will life be like in the presence of God, in the new Jerusalem. What will the city of God really be like? What is, what is life like where there's no sin? What is the world like where there's no pain and suffering? You know, what, if, what if you could trust everyone perfectly? You know, they're, they're, no one locks their doors in the new Jerusalem, right? And you don't even think about it. There, there's no ADT in the new Jerusalem. There's no need for it. There's no... What if you could perfectly trust the intentions of someone else? Someone said something, you'd be like, oh, that's what, that's what they mean. That's exactly what they're going to do. How good would that be? What if you lived among a people that were more concerned with your well-being than they were with their own well-being? That's the city. That's, that's what the new Jerusalem is like. And, and, and here's what he's saying is, is now you have come to this city. And, and I think what this means is that when the people of God gather, when the people that know Christ gather, there should be a taste of this new city. When we gather together here at Christ's covenant, not perfectly because we, we still have sin, we still wrestle with the old man, but I hope here... There's a taste of the new city that, you know, in, in, in Atlanta, um, people are selfish. People want to serve themselves. People will be dishonest with you. You have to be shrewd out there because it's a rough world. But in here, in this little city within the city, I hope that what you experience is people that want to serve you and love you. I hope that what you experience is a, is a taste of something different, a city within a city. It's a, it's a new city, where Christ and his kingdom and his reign is really known, not in the whole world, but he's at least known in our hearts and in our life. That's what Jesus is inviting you to. 
Spurgeon said that the, the church, the gathering of the church is the dearest place on earth. And you know, I, I hope that for a few hours every Sunday at Sutton Middle School on Northside Drive, that this is the dearest place on earth. It's a taste of the new city. It's a taste of, of what it will be like when everything has been made right. But the second thing that you've been called to in this Zion city is, it says a festal gathering. I, I would just say a party. What is it like to be a Christian? Well, I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is it's like a party. I think it should be like a party. You know, I've loved this week. Christmas is a fun time for me. I love going to parties. And you know what I, you know what I really love? You know what I really love? The party, I, re- I don't like going to all parties, right? But I like going to parties where I know everybody there and I love everybody there. And I get there and, you know, so many times this week I've said, oh, man, I love you. I'm so grateful for you because I really love these people and I'm grateful for them. And it's, a great to, it's great to have somebody in your life that you can say that to. And it's great to have somebody in your life that says that to you. That's what a good party's like. And I think that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about the angels that are around the throne of God. What are they like? What are the angels doing? They're praising God and they're receiving glory from God. It's just this exchange of awe and this exchange of glory. And it's saying that that's what we're invited into. You've already come to this festal gathering. The festal gathering of angels. This is what the Christian life is like i hope this is kind of what it's like when we gather here it's like a little party on sunday morning we don't have like a crazy band and dancing or whatever but because we're with each other because we love one another because god is among us we're, we're celebrating together and not just here i you know even when you get together with a friend to pray anytime you gather with the church or, or just a friend to read to study the bible together i hope it's 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 there's a joy that fills your heart because we're, we're, we're united together in this union with God. You've been called to a new city. You've been called to this party. And last, you have come to a family. It says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who is this king? Who is this king? What king is like Jesus? Jesus doesn't just come to rule over us, to give us order and to protect us. But God in Christ adopts us. He says, I'm going to be the king that actually invites you to come live in the palace, to come and be my child, to come and be my son, to be my daughter, to dwell with me. He doesn't just rule over us. He adopts us, and he calls us to share in all the family spoils. That's the kind of king that we have in Jesus. Here's the deal. You all have a king. There is something in your life, there, there has been something in your life in 2019 that has been ordering your life and that you're looking to for protection. You all have a king. Is your king like this? Is your king like this? And will your king stand before God or will your king collapse? <laughs> Does your king offer a city like this, a party like this, a family like this? And see, I want you to hear, this is what the Lord offers to those who know him in faith. And, and he's, again, he's not just some distant king. He's the king that's come to save us. He's the king that's come to save us by his very own blood. Look at verse 24. It says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood 
that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in Genesis 4, the first child, the first offspring of man, Cain, the first offspring of Adam and Eve, was jealous of his brother Abel. And he murders his brother Abel. And and it's not necessarily in the text, but you can deduce that he buries Abel. He buries him in the ground. And later God comes looking for Abel and he says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? It's this famous line, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay. And then God says to Cain, he says, your brother's blood calls out to me from the ground. Here's what all that means. You and me, like Cain, have blood on our hands. But we all try to hide it, right? We've all sinned against God, but we all hide it. We all do, okay? So if you're like, well, I think I hide it a little bit. So does the guy next to you. We all hide it. We all want to come off better than we are. We all, we all want to come off like we've got our stuff together. And, and, and you know, we don't say that. What we say is, you know what, I try to do the right thing. I try to do good. I try to be as good as I can. But here's the deal. That's a lie. You don't. You don't try as hard as you can. You don't try as hard as you can. Quit saying that. You don't. You know, look, on my, the the very basic command of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, okay? On my best day, on my most righteous day, I don't do that. I don't do that. I, I may try a little bit, but I don't try as hard as I can, if I have to be honest. I don't even try. That's how, that's how selfish my heart is. That's how mess, on my best day, when I'm, when I'm seeing God for all of his goodness, I don't even love him with all my heart then. I'm still a little self-focused. I still find myself kind of hedging my bets. You know, the second command, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? You know that one? On my very best day, on my most loving day, if you took the energy that I spend thinking about my neighbor and compare it to the energy that I spend thinking about myself, they wouldn't even compare. They wouldn't even come close. Or if you take the intensity that I want things to go my way and compare it to the intensity that I want things to go my neighbor's way, you'd be like, you don't try. You don't try. We all have blood on our hands. And we've all tried to bury it in the ground. And just like the blood of Abel, the blood of our sin calls out to God. But it's not a good message. It's a message of condemnation. And this verse is an amazing passage because it says that Jesus has come to mediate a new covenant. The work of your hands, the work that you tried to pull off, It calls out from the ground condemnation. But the blood of Jesus calls out to God forgiveness and love and adoption. A sweeter word, a sweeter word than the blood of Abel. This is your king. This is what Jesus has done for you. So what are you resting on? What are you conforming to? We have a king who humbled himself and died in our place with a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, we don't have the fullness of this today. Uh, At this point in the Advent, as we talk about, we're still longing, as Shannon talked about, we're still longing 
to experience all that our king offers. As Psalm 110 says, it's a kingdom that we experience in the presence of our enemies, amidst our enemies. We want to see this kingdom advance, but it doesn't advance in traditional ways. And this is just kind of an add-on. We don't advance this kingdom in power. I don't know how you think the kingdom of Jesus advances, but it, it doesn't advance in traditional kingdom advancing kind of ways. It doesn't advance with armies. It doesn't advance with swords. It doesn't advance with might. Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. I came across, across this quote from Martin Luther that I just loved. And I want you to hear this. He says, in his kingdom, Christ has nothing to do with secular power and government. Nor are we Christians able to defeat and subdue the devil by uh, and the world by the means of physical power or weapons. And he says, no, we are to fight for Christ by suffering, by faith, and by the preaching of God's word. This is how this kingdom advances, how it grows. And I guess I would ask you, if you know this king, are you willing to suffer? <laughs> Do you have faith in him and not in your own might? Do you love his word? Do you love his word and trust it? But as we close, I want to remind you, it's not going to always be like this. Now we, we advance this kingdom through suffering, through faith, through preaching. But, but let's, let's close with the reminder, as the text says, and I wish I had more time to meditate on this, but... I'll just allow you to meditate on this as I read it. In light of this king, in light of this king who has come, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet more, once more, I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You hear that? Here's the deal. One day, the voice from heaven will speak. We'll all stand before the presence of God. And all of the little feeble kingdoms of this world will be shaken to nothing. They will collapse. The almighty God will appear and he will speak. And, and, and as it says, all of these things will be removed. All of these things will be shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Every kingdom will collapse. Therefore, trust in Christ, trust in God, trust in the one who cannot be shaken. Don't you see how feeble all this is? You know, David, who was the king, (laughs) David, who was the king, he was the king of Israel, he had all this power, he realized it. He said, there is another Lord. There is something else that I have to order my life around. There is someone else that I have to find my identity in. Have you seen this? Have you trusted him? Have you rested in him? And if you have, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer to God 
acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the shakeability of the kingdoms that we find ourselves resting in and the sturdiness and eternality of Christ and his kingdom. Father, may we see these things today and not only on the last day. May we see them now. May our eyes be open to them now. May we respond to you now in light of this gospel with reverence and awe. May we see that you are a consuming fire. So Father, I pray that you would you would call us to the blood that speaks a more pleasing word than the blood of Abel. Not the word of condemnation, but the word of forgiveness and light. Give us faith in Jesus. May we align ourselves with Jesus. May we find ourselves in his order and under his protection. Turn our hearts away from lesser things, Lord. And anchor us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.